This device isn't a spaceship. It's a time machine. Goes backwards, forwards. It takes us to a place where we ache to go again. It's not called the wheel. It's called the carousel. Hello and welcome to the Carousel Podcast. I am Isaac Simpson. I'm here with Jeremy Carl, a Claremont guy and guy in our scene who has great tweets, very hilarious tweets. I, you always have a nice wry uh, perspective on things and very smart. Um, you are formerly of the Trump White House. And yeah, I, you're working on a book about anti-white racism. You talk a lot about immigration, so that'll be a good thing to cover. And you also have some environmental chops. So I guess first and foremost, how does somebody become, uh, you know, a uh, professional political thinker such as yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I had started out, I was... Uh, I was very involved in politics from a young age. I uh, I, I ran a, as an undergrad at Yale uh, for the many more years back than I, I'm willing to admit on this podcast, uh, a organization called the Yale Political Union, which was kind of the big umbrella campus organization that, that dealt with politics. And so I was very into that. But I got uh, involved in the tech business. I was kind of an Internet 1.0 guy. And I did that for a while and then sort of uh, retired, quote unquote, from doing that. And um, over a period of time, just sort of got back into my original interest in politics. I started working uh, first with an environmental group briefly and then uh, went and did a master's at the Kennedy School, kind of increasing my policy chops, uh, then went uh, to India, of all places, and worked at a uh, energy policy think tank out there for a little while then came back uh, to the United States, um, ended up uh, going to do a doctorate at Stanford. And uh, from there, I was asked by former Secretary of State, uh, the late former Secretary of State George Schultz, to run a task force at the Hoover Institution that he was running. And so I left into that for about a decade uh, and got involved, uh, not just sort of in my, my kind of academic stuff, but began writing again more seriously about uh, broader political issues, like some of the ones that you touched about that didn't really touch on uh, the things I was doing academically, but that I was very passionate about. Uh, and so I did that for a decade. And uh, then I eventually left because uh, I had five kids and I didn't want to raise them in California, or at least not in the Bay Area. Um, and uh, wound up uh, through some circuitous routes, uh, moving to Montana, and I've been here ever since, and and working with Claremont uh, sort of remotely, which is a really wonderful fit for me, kind of intellectually over the last uh, four plus years now. So what you're saying is you've never had a real job. Absolutely. <laughs> no, no, no. I was uh, the closest thing I had to a real job was I, I had very real jobs uh, st right out of college. No, uh, I've, I've, in, in the Internet 1.0 business, I I had oh, actual yeah. P&Ls that I was responsible for. But it's it's been a long time and it's 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 been a luxury. You know, I always you know say uh, these are not always um, 
you know, they don't, uh, you're not going to get rich doing this sort of work, yeah. but you can make a living and, and a good living. And it's, it's fascinating. It's great work. And if you, if you love policy stuff, uh, there's few better places to be uh, doing than, than the sort of things I'm doing now. Right. So were you in, where were you before Montana? So I spent, I spent 14 years in Palo Alto, California, because oh, that's Alto. where, where Hoover uh, Hoover Institution is is on the Stanford campus, so I'd gone there to do a doctorate, and then I just slid over to to Hoover and worked there, uh, and so I was there for quite some time. But I grew up in North Carolina. I've sort of lived all around. Ah, okay, cool. Uh, yeah, I think you're the third person that's been on this podcast with five kids, so we're yeah. doing well. You have Peachy on. Yeah, Peachy. Yeah, and then Bennett, Bennett's phylactery. Ah, I did not know that Bennett had five kids. I think he's got five. Well, he's doing the natalism conference. So, right. yeah. you know, so yeah. that's got to walk the walk. Yeah, right. He's He knows what he's doing. Um, yeah. Cool, man. Well, so, yeah, I mean, it seems like your beat these days that you're interested in is is this immigration thing and the kind of anti-white thing. So I, I know you're working on a book about the anti-white thing. Let's start with that. So what I mean, when I hear anti-white racism i'll i'll, I'll right. be honest it it kind of gives me the willies a little bit right because i'm just like i of course know what you're talking about and it right. of course exists right. right right um and i think it actually is a basically the diagnosis of uh a lot of the problems but yeah at the same time it sounds like we're screaming about racism still so like how right. what do you think about that well, it's interesting. And, you know, it gives me the willies that I wrote a book about. I'm writing a book about it. Um, I mean, and that's why we need to talk about it. I mean, we need to get over our discomfort because ultimately I would argue and do argue in the book that like across a variety of um, different domain areas, it's functionally the political organizing principle of the United States at this point. I don't know if he's too histrionic in saying that, but, but right. like at least in certain ways. And so the fact that we can't talk about it um, is sort of indicative of why we need to talk about it. Um, you know, whether or not it kind of makes us super happy to do it. And I'll just give you a, um, a kind of indication of what this is. I mean, I have a, a great publisher and, and um, uh, you know, been, been a real pleasure to work with. Originally, the kind of working title of this had been uh, a, a title called It's Okay to Be White. Uh, and uh, we'd gone with that. I kind of got side off from the the editors, and then the book sales people came back and they said, "You know, we got to get this into Walmart. It's just that's too edgy, right? You you can't do it." And uh, you know, at one level, I kind of understand that. On the other hand, if you just take that statement at face value, the fact that such an anodyne, banal statement, like, "Of course, it's okay to be white. It's okay to be black. It's okay to be Asian. You know, whatever." Um, the fact that that would be considered so controversial and so edgy, it's it's a perfect kind of indication of the very problem that I was attempting to write about. So. Well, they're idiots because the book would have sold with that title. The book would have sold incredibly well. So <laughs> yeah, well, probably not capitalist. Yeah, well, I, I hope it will still sell incredibly well. But yes, <laughs> I think it would have been a great punchy title. But uh, I'm not the person who makes those uh, 
those executive decisions on the part of the publisher. Well, but, and, and they're going to say it's not that it's not OK to be white. It's they're going to say this is a dog whistle that was made up yeah. on 4chan that was posted by white supremacists at the Charlottesville right. rally. Right, right, right. right. And as, as long as you say Charlottesville, then that means right. anything is off the table. So, right. right. But but that was the point. But like, why did they do that? Right. That's the whole point of it. Why did they choose that phrase? Because they knew that they could get a rise out of people by even simply stating this most inoffensive thing that really everybody should be able to agree with. I mean, everybody should be able to agree that it is okay <laughs> to be any ethnic background. There's nothing wrong with that, right? But like, if you say that with respect to white people, you suddenly join the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. So, so that was really the point. Um, but and I do, I do reference this actually in the book. So it's not that uh, this has totally disappeared. I, I talk about it a good bit because I think it's it's very indicative of the problem and where it is. And and your reaction to it, I think, is is again, it's totally typical, even among people who are very sympathetic to the underlying issue. And I think we need to understand that that is because a certain type of left-wing thought has cultural hegemony, right? Yeah. And it can cause us to feel shame or embarrassment or feel like, oh, we shouldn't do that, even about saying the thing, something that should be totally uncontroversial. So, you know, I've read uh, Rufo's book and I've read Caldwell's book. Yeah. And I would assume that the genesis, I mean, you can tell me, but I like March through the institutions. That's Rufo's thing, which is yeah. basically the hard. And I'm, I'm I know, you know, this, I'm just saying so the audience yeah, of can course. follow uh, uh, the, this is, um, you know, uh, the 60s, 70s ultra radicalism of the Black Panthers, basically, where, you know, or the Weather Underground, where they were literally exploding. I mean, there was something like 3000 bombings in the United States in, in that those years yeah. or something. And, you know, they were bombing people and killing people all the time in the name of this left wing revolution. Right. Those people uh, became very unpopular because they were killing people. And <laughs> yeah. then but the, the left wanted to sponsor them. And so they put them in the universities, basically, and say that, sure. they, that that line of thought became sort of a dominant strain. Uh, and those those activists became a dominant strain in the higher education institutions and the art institutions, et cetera, of America. So right. that happened. And then before that, we had the Civil Rights Act which is where Christopher Caldwell kind of like right the beginning of this. So we, how did we get here in your timeline? Yeah, well, I, I you know, I, I'm a big fan of what uh, both Chris's do. Um, and I think, uh, you know, Christopher Rufo has been the most effective advocate in terms of understanding how language works, in terms of understanding how um, associations work. And, and, you know, you see some of the stuff he's trying to do right now with linking Hamas with BLM and, and you know all of this is accurate I mean it is the same people it um, is the same people actually, uh, yeah so, somebody's actually got to go do that yeah um and so I mean he's terrific I think Chris uh, Chris Caldwell's institutional analysis again I, I I quote from this quite extensively in my book talking about how the Civil Rights Act and then the follow-ons if we talk about Richard Hanania he kind of gets into this a little bit in some of his work, some of the follow-on uh, bureaucratic things that were added on to the Civil Rights Act kind of got us to uh, where we are today. Um, 
I do think there's more to that story. And I think one of the things, and I think for various ideological reasons, they, again, I don't want to ascribe anything to them, but I think they may be more reluctant as authors to engage with is, is the changing demographics of the United States have had a big effect on it. I mean, when you have a large number of people from new demographic groups who don't see um, in the sort of traditional um, story that we tell about America or told about America, they don't see themselves reflected in that. It's sort of it's a it's a natural human tendency. There's nothing um, there's nothing nefarious about it. They want to rewrite a kind of history of America that includes themselves in a starring role or people like them in a starring role, and ultimately that that inherently means you kind of have to delegitimize to some degree, at least uh, the bad white guys who came before you and say, you know, actually this was the, the old America. You even saw this in a lot of Obama's rhetoric, right? Um, if you kind of get over some of the, the airy gloss that was given to it by uh, left-wing media, which is to say the mainstream quote unquote media, um, it was really about uh, this old stuff was all bad or the only way that we can really in any way redeem uh, the the concept of America or the, the original values of America is to essentially erase historic America. And so I think that, that all those things are at play. I think that um, the institutions are important. I think the laws are important, but I also think the demographics among other things are really important. And for various reasons, I think a lot of people have been reluctant to deal with the reality of, of addressing that third point. Wait, so what is the third point? Sorry, the, the demographics. So you've got institutions, oh, you've got, got you've yeah. got laws. I, oh, I see. And this is and then where you've you're got demography. In. Yeah, right. Okay. And so you're you know, you're kind of more focusing on that right. third point. Yeah. Well I think they're all important. I just I just think that there's there's a certain reluctance on the part of some folks because we don't want to we you know, there's an inherent nature to say, oh, we're a propositional nation functionally, which is to say like we're just you know, if you believe in these ideas, then you're American. Yes. Yes. Um, and I think that's a mistake. It's not that we don't have certain ideas that I would say are fundamentally American, but we're not kicking people out of the political community for not believing in those ideas anymore. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I and I don't think, you know, in me saying that, no matter how much I could point to our history and say, hey, this is like part and parcel of what it really has historically meant to be American, I think I would get very, very large swaths of the American people now who would disagree with me on that. That wouldn't have been true 50 years ago. But I think part of the reason for that is that you have changing demography. And I also think beyond yeah. the sort of ideas, Americans are a people. And that isn't, it's not a totally impermeable thing. Um, I'm not suggesting that uh, kind of quote unquote whiteness is um, synonymous with Americanness uh, in some sense. Um, but neither is um, the historical nature of this as a European derived civilization irrelevant to oh, yeah. the concept of being American. Well, and this is where people get so freaked out, right? I mean, th th right. this is where when you when you this is why, uh, you know, you're on the uh, E right along with me, because as soon as you start saying these kinds of things, people's alarm bells immediately go off and they go, yeah. wait, wait, what do you, what do you mean? Are you saying that this is a white country? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like, yeah, 
it's like it's not that it's a white country but it's that it kind of is like it kind of is a white country i mean it's like you it you can't of course do do black people have a massive role to play in the history of america and are they you know, I, I view African-Americans as every bit American as me. I don't I don't think right. I don't know how you feel about that. But I mean, like, I, oh, I view sure. them as every I don't think I'm more American than them. Right. Um, But uh, you can't deny it. So it, it's a the entire basis of America is a your Western European traditional uh, experiment. Right. right. I mean, and to try and deny that is. It's crazy. And people always say, well, look, the Constitution's racist. And I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah like, no, of course yeah, it was. Right. right. And, 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 that's, and that's the point. You know, one of the things I sort of again, I, I go through this in the book. But if you look at the demography of the United States pre uh, the Hart Seller Immigration Act of 1965, which kind of changed everything around. I mean, the overwhelming majority of states outside the southeast were functionally almost all white. And so it's not that we're trying to erase other people from from history. It's just that's a fact. I mean, that's like who is here. It doesn't right. mean they were even better or worse. It's just that's what we were. You know, we were a European derived civilization coming from European Enlightenment ideas, from Christianity as a kind of religious source. Yeah. You know, from you can kind of go up and down the things. This is just these were the ways that America was historically defined. And again, it's not a a statement about superiority or or inferiority it's just that's what most of america was and we're so we're a christian nation also you know yeah and, no of course we're, we're we are christian nation. you know it's like yeah, no and, and you can kind of go you know back and again i'm doing a piece right now uh for the claremont institute uh, for the american mind on christian nationalism uh and you know i think that's their get into this and that's and again, word, though, you right? can you can have and people have um, lively debates on the contours of that. I mean, even the founders, you had a huge uh, range from Jefferson's deism to, uh, you know, sort of John Adams more being traditional to, to a lot of people who wound up as kind of full on what we would call fundamentalists among the founders. <clears throat> but there's there's a tendency to um, uh, just kind of ascribe the most left-wing version of Jeffersonian deism to like that's what the founders thought about church and state and I'm like well no that wasn't really it and in fact uh we had even individual state churches i think out of seven or eight out of the 13 colonies had state established churches after we became independent yeah. right i mean the the intrusion of christianity in early american life that nobody suggested that this was somehow unconstitutional was huge um and again, that history has kind of been erased for ideological reasons, and it was legally erased by the Supreme Court in a series of ill-advised uh, decisions, in my view, starting in the 1940s. And again, that's not saying that I want to go back to us having state churches or anything like that. I mean, there are people on the right who who do. I, I take a much uh, lighter touch view of, of what uh, a Christian nationalism uh, might look like in the U.S., but it is to say, you know, we can't erase this as American history and say that um, godlessness is the the only thing that we can have in the public square. Um, yeah, well, which, we we have a we have an officially atheist public square. Right, exactly. Now. Right. Yeah. No, and well, you know that was not the way the the founders would have ever understood our uh, you know constitution or, or our religion. They were trying to say, hey, look, 
you don't get to make America congregationalist or Catholic or Presbyterian or or what have you. That's what they were were concerned with. Um, I think again, in their mind, how many people know that history? Very few. Well, I think what's fascinating about what you're saying, I've never even heard of this state church thing. So, so yeah. what? There were actual state churches until the 1940s. No, no, no. So uh, the the last official state church, I believe, was Massachusetts, was disestablished in 1833. Oh, okay. So, so, so we got the. But the point was when we, you know, we had the Constitution. Yeah. There was nobody saying, um, "Oh, these state churches are unconstitutional." I mean, eventually, the Supreme Court decided through the Fourteenth Amendment and the Incorporation Doctrine that, uh, you know, the idea that you couldn't have a national church also applied to state governments. And you can kind of argue about the the wisdom of that decision or not. But that was part of a, a series of decisions the court made from the 40s to the 60s, um, taking religion out of the public square. And for the first time, uh, the Supreme Court in 2022 reversed what was called the so-called Lemon Test from a 1971 Supreme Court case, which has basically made it a little bit easier for the first time in, in a half century now for say religious schools to get funding, not essentially be discriminated against to get t- types of public funding uh, versus secular schools. So we, I think the the current court may take a little bit. Um, they may be trying to peel back a little bit of the the extremity on this. But no, uh, in nineteen until nineteen sixty one, um, there were religious tests for public office were considered okay in some states. And in fact, there was this nineteen sixty one case. That went before the Supreme Court in Maryland, where a guy who was wanted to be a public notary and you needed to swear, I think, if it not Christian belief, some sort of religious belief. And this guy was like, I'm an atheist. Um, and so this went to the Supreme Court. But before that, the religious test was upheld by the Federal Appeals Court. And then the Supreme Court, in a nine to zero ruling, said, no, no, you know, you can't you can't do anything about that. And again, regardless of whether you think that was right or wrong. And there were eight states at that point that still had religious tests for office on their uh, their 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 law law books. Um, whether you think that's right or wrong, and I would generally say that religious tests for office, you know, are probably a a bad idea in America. The point was this was not beyond the pale of what was considered American or American discussion, even into the mid twentieth century. And the left, of course, has done the its best job to erase that history and to say, oh, you know, we have to have this e- this atheist public square because of the founders. And that's certainly not how the founders would have ever understood uh, American history or Is what they were trying to do. atheist public square or in my head, what they think, you know, the, the left or the, the hegemonic global government thinks of that it should be in the public square is, you know, when you see them in their like world economic forum like weird outfits, like standing on that stage and behind them is the color wheel. And it's like color, 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 color. And of course they're obsessed with the rainbow flag. Ultimately, I think that in their mind, they want the public square to be a, a Christmas tree, a menorah, a, you know, Kwanzaa bush, (laughs) <laughs> you know, yeah. like a, a whatever the Vietnamese uh, holiday is, you know, they want it to be like all together in a ring. Right. Yeah. And they want everybody. They they just want to be kind of o- passively overseeing uh, these quaint rituals of the yeah. of, of the populace. 
Yeah. Well, I think it it depends, right? I mean, uh, around the holidays, I think you see a little more tolerance um, for religion uh, or religious display of some sort, just because it's such a, a folk tradition that you get pushback if if somebody's like, well, you're not going to include my Christmas tree. Like it kind of wakes the normie American up too much to do it otherwise. Yeah. Um, and if that means that we need to uh, put in Kwanzaa, that's this completely fake holiday started by, you know, a radical black nationalist. To the commit, same people you know, we're talking about. It was like started you know, by Kamala Harris, literally. It was, it was, <laughs> it was, you know, started by this guy who was like this abusive yeah. felon to women. I mean, he's like a horrible, horrible yeah. story behind this guy. And, right, 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 right. You know, right. it's celebrating right. East African stuff, whereas most African-Americans certainly who've historically been here uh, were from West Africa. So, I mean, but, you know, we need to include all those things. I would say outside of those areas like the holidays um, where you, you know, it kind of becomes a little bit too triggering for the normie American to not be allowed to have some display. They just want to take any sort of religious thing out of the public square at all. And in fact, this 2022 Supreme court case was all about a, a high school coach in, in Bremerton, Washington, who was fired for leading a voluntary prayer, uh, not even sectarian. Oh, right. Yeah. His team after uh, games. Yeah. And again, like whether you think this is good or bad, like it's, these are, you know, interesting issues to debate or whether this even furthers the cause of religion, you know, I, I have this debate with other Christians. Um, I think you can have this, but to say that it's unconstitutional, that's a lot more problematic. And so the court at least is finally maybe clawing back a little bit of this and saying that, you know, no. And of course the the real problem at the end of the day is we do have a religion, it's wokeness uh, and everything. It's transgenderism. I mean, that is the religion of the public square when you take, real religions out of it um well and and that's one thing i've written about this uh that's completely indefensible i mean if if anybody really filed a serious lawsuit on this either the judges would have to just lie or or they would have to accept that it's a religion because if if you've actually looked into what the meaning of gender identity is like, have you ever actually yeah. looked into this? Sure. Yeah. It's like, it's like gender identity is a thing that exists. It's like, it's not, yeah. it, it's literally like a fixed, like thing that exists in the ethereal world. They, they, yeah. they but, and yeah. it's there. Yeah. But you can't see it. You can't in detect the spirit it. world. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. But the only way you know what it really is is based on how you feel and based on what sure. people say. But sure. you can't change the thing because it exists somewhere. So it's obviously the soul. They're literally, I mean, they're describing yeah. a soul in every way. And and right. so, you yeah. know, the, if people are going to legislate around that, surely somebody eventually has to understand this is a, a religious belief. Absolutely. And and there's a, you know, there's a longtime conservative blogger named Ace of Spades, you may be familiar with, uh, he's been doing it for 20 plus years. And uh, he had a great uh, quote. I mean, again, he did this years ago, uh, quoted it once in a, a review I did for Claremont Review of Books, where he said, look, the, the left are secularists like me. And he says, I'm a secularist, but they're extremely poor secularists, because they think that they've sort of taken religion 
out of their thinking. But what they've yeah. actually done is let religion invade every single other mode of yes. their thought <laughs> yeah. rather than have religion as like this discrete thing that, yeah. you know, we kind of understand and it, it, you know, sets apart in some way they've made everything religious, but they don't even realize it. Well, so. and so I was actually talking to a, a rabbi about this and, you know, they, it, it's funny what like these Hasidic rabbis, they, they're kind of like uh surprisingly open hearted about these things. Um, but they all kind of, not all of them, but a lot of them say the same thing, which is like, the reason this is happening is because people have so much time on their hands, right? They, they, they have so much, they, they have just too much time to think. And so it's very ironic because what they're doing is seeking Maslow's self-actualization, right? I mean, that's that's right. what you do when you have a lot of free time. You look for purpose, you look for the, these things. But they're finding, like anybody, that religion is at the top of that pyramid, but they're not able to admit that it's religion for some reason. Like they, right. so, so in a way, they're they're uh, this rabbi would say the exact same thing as you, which is, uh you know, they have found religion, you know, and, right. and they're exploring their religion every single day. They just, right. for some reason, don't want to call it that. So why do they not want to call it that? Like, what's so scary about it to them? Because for them, religion is this, like, scary thing that's, you know, held by these bumpkins, and particularly for, for a lot of Jews, you know, it's like then they, they want to pogrom me or, or yeah. whatever else, <laughs> you know, it is. But, like, we certainly can't let them... Um, uh, you know, get anywhere near us, it's very threatening, right? Or, you know, they look at sort of some of the rituals, certainly of like a Hasidic Jews, and they're like, wow, that's alienating, whatever it is. I don't believe in that. And so they sort of look to bring that religious thought into a way that's more comfortable, you know, for them as kind of 21st century moderns. But how um, did this happen? Wait, wait, when did this atheism creep into the world you know and, and yeah. from whence i mean i guess it's been happening i mean what the french revolution had all this weird shit in it right I yeah, mean, they, yeah. They, they the temple renamed, of reason and yeah they renamed notre dame like the temple of space or some shit yeah so it's like this has been an instinct for a while yeah yeah you know i don't know and i think when you look at the french revolution this and this is uh yeah i'm gonna be a little careful here because i'm this is not my expertise. I love intellectual history, but, uh, the, you know, I'm sure there are people who've written lots of good books about this, uh, and I'm not one of them. So <laughs> uh, I, I want to proceed with all due humility. But but having said that, um, you know, for you to look at French Revolution as kind of the first very obvious uh, large scale instantiation of this type of view, the church represented the established power, right? And, you know, maybe we have to overthrow the established power. And so that means overthrowing the church, but we still have these feelings. So we're going to dedicate it to reason and rationality. And um, certainly you saw the same sort of thing under the communists with Mao and under Stalin. And, uh, you know, even, even Hitler was fundamentally, if you kind of really understand him, uh, you know, fundamentally an anti-Christian figure, uh, you know, he co-opted churches where he he absolutely needed to because he he understood the the sort of folk belief of of Germans was not going to kind of put up with completely getting rid of the church. But but he was pretty hostile to institutionalized Christianity. 
which is not something something that not everybody understands. Um, so uh, yeah, maybe it traces back to the French Revolution. Uh, certainly Nietzsche and the death of God. Uh, even on our side of the right, of course, there's yeah. these debates between Christians and Nietzscheans. I mean, I'd say that's actually a pretty interesting cleavage. And then you've got guys like Zero HP Lovecraft, who are kind of trying to do the, the Christo-Nietzschean synthesis. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to say, I mean, obviously that's a that's a tricky thing to do. I would say that I think a Christianity, um, I, just speaking personally now, the sort of infinite depravity I'm saying as a Calvinist um, of humanity is actually an important element to me of Christianity. And yet I think without becoming Nietzscheans, Christians in America could do, would do better and bring in more people. If we also acknowledge that sometimes people can transcend that in really great ways, at least temporarily. And that that's something that we should celebrate without kind of um, removing our fundamentally fallen natures. So if you want to call that Christianian synthesis, uh, whatever you want to call it's fine. But I do think that that kind of interesting cleavage on the right is something that we kind of need to solve and ultimately bridge. I try to do that a little bit, uh, you know, in my small way, because you get a lot of really unproductive sniping between people who really should ultimately be on the same team against uh, the left that kind of threatens us all. This is the trads v. Vitalists. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So and, how, and, you know, like, how... I love vitalism. I think Nietzsche is a really interesting guy to read. You know, I've read BAP. I'm like, you know, yeah. like I've done all that stuff. Um, and I think that there are some interesting things there, but I also think there's some important things that they're, they're missing. Uh, right. you know, in my view. So, well, I mean, it's also Nietzsche has to kind of be read in, in context, right? I mean, like sure. the, the Christianity that he is raging against is just right. so different than, than, uh, what we have. Now. Right. I mean, it's more, yeah. Um, so how is zero trying to bridge that? Do, do you know? You know, it's a long, you could go, it's like a three part thing that he did. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to, he's a person who I know takes a lot of pride in his intellectual content. So I'm not even going to try to sort of summarize what he tried to do there, but you can go read it. Uh, if you like type in Chris Derdigian synthesis, I think, <laughs> you know, to Google, you'll, you'll find it. And I mean, and to be fair to him also, he's like, you know, this is just a, uh, a starting point. Uh, I'm not saying I've got this. I am sure that there are a lot of other people within intellectual history and church history who have tried to do this in various ways. He just happens to have been very explicit about uh, trying to do that. Right, right. Um, okay, so earlier you mentioned uh, the Heart Seller Act, and I feel like you're probably the person to ask about this. So I, you know, I'm a lawyer by training and I'm a member of the California bar, but I don't practice law in any, in any capacity. Um, heart seller is something I completely missed in law school. So what, like, what, what was heart seller? What did it mean? When was it? Yeah, great. Um, so heart seller was really the law that probably almost more than any other fundamentally transformed the United States, uh, at least demographically. Uh, it was passed in 1965. Um, the background of it was essentially John F. Kennedy. And again, I've written about this. I've done talks on this. But uh, John F. Kennedy is a senator. He wants to run for president. So this is now the late 50s. Um, uh, 
And he realizes politically, I mean, and I think he, I don't want to totally diminish him here. I think to some degree, this also reflected his sincere belief as a, a lace curtain uh, Irish Catholic uh, immigrant uh, oh, right. you know, himself, but from, from a family that uh, was very, very well established in some ways, but could never kind of be the Boston Brahmin in other ways because they were this, this other thing, the, these Catholics. So he's very acutely aware of that difference. But he kind of decides that he wants to go after Northeastern ethnics um, and Midwestern ethnics as part of his electoral strategy to run for president in 1960. And so uh, in combination with um, the Anti-Defamation League, he eventually comes up with this pamphlet, uh, more than a pamphlet, it's, it's a short book, let's say, called A Nation of Immigrants. Um, and that's where you first see that um, phrase enter the public mind. I've, again, written extensively on why this is not true historically, um, but which is uh, obviously at a trivial level, it's true in that everybody came here from somewhere, even the Native Americans. But in the sense that we mean it today, it's not true. Um, and uh, but he but he went with this and, he, you know, Kennedy was very good at kind of creating an intellectual atmosphere about something around something. And this got pushed a little bit in his administration. It didn't kind of fundamentally happen, but then he's assassinated, of course, in November of 1963. The ADL then publishes this book, um, A Nation of Immigrants, uh, right afterwards with the very explicit um, goal of changing America's immigration laws, which at that point had been happened in 1924, were the most restrictive immigration laws that we've had in the history of the United States. I mean, in terms of really kind of specifying a low numbers of immigrants, relatively speaking, B where those immigrants could come from. And that had to do a lot with the existing demographics of the United States. This enraged a lot of Catholic ethnics in particular, also Jewish ethnics um, who didn't like that. So they were desperate to get rid of it. Um, Philip Hart, who was the grandson of, of Irish Catholic uh, immigrants and Emmanuel Seller, who was the the grandson of Jewish immigrants, um, were sort of the, the primary legislative sponsors. And in 1965, they managed to push this through. And the real goal of this and ideologically at the time, and you could tell, so President Johnson is the guy who ultimately ends up signing this, uh, and he does a signing ceremony at Ellis Island. But during the debate, there's all sorts of, it's fascinating to kind of read the debate because they're like, oh, well, this isn't going to cause anybody, cost anybody jobs and it's not going to change the demography of the U.S. at all. It's not going to do this. It's just this little small thing. Um, and of course, that wasn't what happened at all. But the other interesting thing is it didn't really end up primarily doing what I think most of the sponsors wanted, which is they were really thinking like, basically, I want to bring over my Polish and Italian cousins. Um that ended up being a much smaller piece of it because what it essentially allowed you to do is what's called chain migration, among other things. So, you know, you could sponsor relatives of various types. What it led to was the particular explosion of Hispanic migration. And then from there, it just kind of went on to everything else. And so you go from a place where before Art Seller, um, pretty much everybody in America is white or black. In the 1960 or 1970 census, even right after Hart Seller, 1960 census, right before Hart Seller, we were three and a half percent Hispanic, I think. That was really the only other significant minority we had in this country. And of those, 80 percent were U.S. born, um, many of whom 
were like the Californios or the Tejano, uh, the the Texi. I can't remember. The, I think it's the Texians. But that may not be right. I apologize to to longtime Hispanic American Texans. But but basically, um, Hispanics who had deep, long roots. In some cases, even predating the United States in places like Texas and California and New Mexico, places where literally the border did actually cross them, as you sometimes hear saying, yeah. that made up a significant percentage at that point of our relatively small Hispanic population. So we were in many ways a really homogenous people at the time. And I don't think it is a coincidence that when we sort of look back almost in, in sort of cheesy advertising to this sort of hyper all-American time, it's the 1950s, right? And again, I'm not saying that to say there were no uh, social problems in the 1950s. I mean, clearly uh, there were, um, but it is to say when we really shut the border and when we really said we are going to pay attention to not dramatically changing the demographics of the United States, it was a time in which our unity, our fertility, lots of other things kind of hit a peak. I don't think that's a coincidence personally. So so what would have happened? I still don't really understand what Heart Seller actually does, though. So say that you were a Hispanic person who wanted to immigrate to America before the passage of Heart Seller. When was it exactly past 65? 65. Yeah. What would have happened? Say you so had wanted the, to the, the, the Before then, you had this law that was passed in 1924. There were specific national origins quotas. I mean, there are a lot of things that Heart Seller did. I'm not even like an expert on all of them, so I don't, don't want to claim that I am. But- uh, you know, and it was set in 1924 at kind of keeping stable the demographics of, I can't remember if it was 1910 or 1890 of the U.S., something around there. Um, and so there were, there were essentially national origins quotas. So this was, again, I don't think there's anything nefarious here. This was very offensive to, you know, if you're like a Southern European or you're Jewish or whatever, you know, like this could understandably be seen as oh wait you're saying that like there's like a limit on me because um you know we weren't as much part of this historical america from back whenever you know i don't like that it doesn't feel american to me i think that's actually a very particularly from the vantage point of 2023 that sentiment is even more understandable but i think even back then it would have been understandable um so what you know this does is it gets rid of these national origins quotas yes. Got and it. it prioritizes essentially people being able to bring over their relatives for a variety of reasons, you know, probably having to do with the faucet kind of turning off from Europe for various reasons, um, change about their changing demography and a huge built up demand in uh, Latin America. You began to get this, this very um, different uh, immigration demographically. And by the way, you know, one fascinating thing I point out, because I have actually read and followed and do in the context of my book, talk about this um, a fair bit, uh, the, the kind of legislative history of this, this debate. Um, you know, by 1968, even just three years after it's passed, you can go read an article in the New York Times with people saying, whoa, this did a bunch of stuff that we weren't expecting. But we're not going to change it because we don't want to be called racists. So, like, even in the 1960s, like the left being able to go in and say, like, oh, right wing, you want to do something, or even moderates, you want to do something you perceive to be in your interest or 
congruent with your history that makes you racist. This is not a circa 2023 invention or even a great awakening invention. Uh, the roots of it are much, much deeper. And again, in my book, I actually really talk about how the roots of anti-whiteness depending on the area go <laughs> you certainly see a big uptake uh, with the great awakening around 2013 but really it goes back much further so this is something i think about a lot the the irish people who came when did they yeah. when was the irish diaspora do we know is there is when? a range yeah yeah well i mean this so the first you know one of the interesting things and this is where you kind of talk about how america is not really a nation of immigrants um one of the things I talk about, so de Tocqueville comes in, he writes Democracy in America and I think right. 1830, whatever. At that point, so one of the fascinating things about Tocqueville, probably the most famous book written on American democracy ever, um, he does not mention immigrants or immigration even one time in the book. Wow. Um, America is less than 2% immigrant at that point. To the extent they are immigrants, they are overwhelmingly from the kind of British and to maybe a slightly lesser extent German, like it's all Northwestern European. It's all sort of co-ethnics of the people who'd already been here. So those those differences, even in the few immigrants you have are not obvious. Um, the first real change you get to this. So there's this whole period and we are closer, again, something I read about in my book, to Tocqueville's time today than Tocqueville was to the original European settlement of the Americas. So you have this whole 200 plus years of colonial settlement and then independent settlement, where we're essentially kind of British. I mean, I, I'm oversimplifying, pleading guilty, but like that is we're, we're Northwestern European at least. Um, well, that's the whole um, Albion seed. That's, yes. Uh, the yes. Four, sure. The four folkways. Yes, the, absolutely. And so, yeah. of course, within those, there are different divisions, right? You have the Scotch Irish and the Puritans and whatever yeah. else, but it's. By 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 the standards of looking back today, it looks very monoethnic. Okay, even though there are some important gradations within those things, the first really big change you begin to have is in 1848, 1849. You have a couple of things: the Irish potato famine that okay. starts the Irish diaspora, yeah, and the failure of the revolutions of 1848 in Europe. So you have a bunch of revolutionary uh, movements in Europe going on at that time to kind of effectively sort of throw off some of the more absolutist monarchies, et cetera. These largely fail um, and a bunch of people begin fleeing for their lives or at least their livelihoods to America. And so for the first time you begin to have a real mass immigration from central Europe. Um, you, again, you'd had some before, I'm not saying there was none. Uh, you can hear Benjamin Franklin uh, complaining about the Germans. So this this goes back a ways, but, but you begin to get the first really significant uh, sort of non-British origin immigration then. And then starting in the late uh, 1880s, you really begin to get what I would call for the first time a true nation of immigrants for a while, where you begin to get um, immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe, uh, places that had not provided very many immigrants um, uh, to the time. I think up till, uh, I mean, I'm not getting these numbers quite right, but but kind of as an approximation, sort of, you know, 86% of our immigration up till 1891 had been from Northwestern Europe or something, something on that order, right? But you begin to get these very different groups going through the early 20th century. Um, 
So for the first time, you begin to get something that maybe looks like real diversity, although it wouldn't, you know, today they'd all be white, um, which is a different uh, subject entirely, but or not entirely, but but primarily. Uh, and that actually kind of freaks everybody out because they're like, well, who are these weird, you know, new groups coming in? And that's one of the things that really leads to the Johnson Reed Act of 1924, which is this very extreme, we're going to close the door and, uh, you know, stop this. And that's that's kind of the regime that we're under for the next 40 years, this almost regime of no immigrants, or at least very few immigrants. Um, and then that's overturned by Hartzeller, and that's where we are today. Ah, okay. That 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 makes a ton of sense. So it's kind of like free for all up until the 20s. Then there's a very strict law passed, and then there's a very liberal law passed, basically. And, right. And, and that's yeah. Okay. Right. So what would have happened in it's during the Irish diaspora? You know, I have this like vision. <laughs> what I always say to people is like, yeah, okay, the door was open, but if you moved here and you couldn't make it, you'd be dead. You know, there's no yes. there's no free stuff. You know, you're right. you're you're out of luck if you can't make a living, right? I mean, is that right. is that true? Like in in the 1850 the Ellis Island era is that yeah. like 18. 18- 80s so 18th yeah that's i think or, or that's around where it starts again i talk about this i write about this in my book the sort of the 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 ideology around the statute of liberty is fascinating and i'll, I'll kind of get to that in just a second but um uh you're absolutely right that if you couldn't make it one of the big differences between old and new immigration you left and in fact one third of immigrants did just that they couldn't really? hack it and they went back to their home countries so you know you combine this with the welfare state and you combine this even now with, in, so, in some cases, depending on the immigrant and the status when they get there, the immigrant's going to come here. And as soon as they arrive, they get all sorts of legal preferences related to their race over, say, my kids. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. That's a little bit weird. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there's a lot of bizarre stuff that we just kind of take for granted that I don't think we should. Um when you talk about the Statue of Liberty, particularly, it's a, it's a really interesting story. So you have this um, uh, sort of uh, the statue is originally put up in the 1880s, uh, right as the American frontier is beginning to close. It doesn't have anything to do with immigration at all. It's a celebration of essentially Franco-American friendship, the ending of slavery, a few other uh, things like that, but not immigration. Um, Emma Lazarus, who is a, a really interesting person historically, she's like the equivalent of a Mayflower Jew. Yeah, um, she's Jewish. She's Jewish. She yeah. is, but she's from the descended from these Sephardic Jews who were the first wow. uh, Jews to come to the United States in 1653 or something in New Amsterdam. And so she's this very unusual person that she's moving in the very upper crust yeah. of New New York society because she's. She's an old line American. Um, now she does have Jewish ethnic interests and concerns as well. And she's looking at the pogroms in Europe and these are affecting her, but she's kind of an awful um, in a lot of ways. And yeah. she was literally, she was childless <laughs> and affluent white female liberal, but that's that's really yeah. who she was. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yes. our, our this very upper class background. Yeah. And she writes this poem to help raise money for the statue's base. Um, the construction of the statue's base. Um, and, uh, you know, it's put with many other things because she's somewhat known at the time. And then it's promptly forgotten. And then a few years later, she dies and she has this friend, uh, I believe it's Philippa Schuyler, who is descendant of Alexander Hamilton and the Schuyler sisters, for those of you who've seen Hamilton. And 
she wants to memorialize her friend Emma Lazarus in some way. So again, it's these two very upper class New York women, both childless, both kind of liberal, uh, you know, and she's sad that her friend died. And so she starts this campaign to get the poem put on the statue's base. And that finally happens. Uh, again, I apologize. I'm not, I can't remember the exact year, but it's like 1900 or sometimes substantially later. And at that point, as all these, you know, Eastern Europeans and Southern Europeans are beginning to arrive en masse at Ellis Island, the Statue of Liberty at least begins ideologically for some people to take on this new public meaning that had nothing to do with why it was built. Right, so. right. It becomes this totally different thing. And it, it, yeah, it, the, the, right. Um, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. So, all right. So skipping ahead till today, um, what do we do about any of this stuff? Yeah, I mean, particularly anti-white racism, that seems. Uh, yeah. What, what do we do about this? Yeah, well, that's that's the question. And again, I, I have a lot of suggestions in my book. And, you know, I think one of the the ways in which I, um, you know, dissent from some of maybe the more, uh, say, activist folks on our side is, you know, this ship has sailed at some point. Right. Like we are going to be we are multi-ethnic America. And unless you implicitly or explicitly have some, you know, fantasies of civil war or violence, that's not changing. Okay. So you have to start with that as a basis. And there's a lot of people who sort of have more extreme ideas, but like when you really push them, that's what they end up talking about. And I just don't think that's realistic. So um, I think we ultimately need to reconstitute it, what a new American ethnicity looks like. Um, I think the first thing you do is, when you're in a, the law of holes, right? When you're in a hole, you stop digging. So we close the border. I mean, and I'm not saying that you don't let in a single immigrant, but you you at least get dramatically less immigration than what we've had before. Yeah. So we have time to reconstitute whatever this new American identity is going to look like. I don't know what it's going to look like, right? I think it'll take any number of forms. Um, so how would you do that, though? Like, how would one close the border? Well, I mean, I think you just get um, a president who's really serious about a deporting people and a uh, either a court system that's serious about letting him do that and or um, uh, a president who's brave enough to say, hey, you know what, courts, I'm just not going to let you tell me what to do here. Like I'm the president. I have uh, sole jurisdiction effectively over what immigration should be. Uh, this is my judgment. So uh, a lot of us had hoped that Trump would be that guy. Um I think Trump, I don't, I don't want to understand. I think Trump did do a lot of really good things about immigration. A lot of them were sort of, I mean, some of them were very public, but a lot of them were like Stephen Miller doing things behind the scenes. They weren't as visible, but we didn't get to where we needed to get at the end of the day. And of course, under Biden, everything got 10 X worse. So um, we need to do that. I'd say the one good thing about this, you know, shipping these illegals from Texas and Florida to these sanctuary cities, which is something people like me had been talking about and begging us to do for ages, was that turned out to be enormously effective, actually politically, to the point that I think, regardless of their their public stance right now, there are there's now a meaningful Democrat constituency that's like, okay, actually, maybe we do need to do something about the border. So I don't think that it's impossible that we do that. So I think that that's, you know, that's kind of element one. Element two is that you have to teach people that there is going to be a political price for 
essentially discriminating against white people. Um, and, you know, Rufo is trying to do this. I think he's been very uh, effective within his own domain at doing this. Um, I do think that it's important that this is not, um, white people are not the race that shall not be named or cannot be named. Um, I, I think you need to be overt about this. I, I do ultimately subscribe to, you know, no, we can't have group rights with like whites as getting these group rights versus all these other people. No, that's not going to work. We have to to focus on fundamental rights that we're all guaranteed in the Constitution as Americans. That's got to be our our philosophical um, grounding. But where you get there, and this is maybe where I do differ a little bit from Rufo. I don't I don't want to ascribe to him without you know uh, without his permission. Is you do have to organize white people to actually organize for their their individual rights collectively. Like when Martin Luther King was going around, um, you know, yes, he was talking about universal rights, but he was organizing black people as black people to get those rights, right? It wasn't just like, oh, I'm going to just talk about this in some airy-fairy way. So I do think that there is ultimately a piece of ethnic organization that is involved here, even though it's ultimately vindicating what should be individual rights under our constitution, not some sort of group rights. But to do that, you're gonna to have to organize people and you're gonna to have to teach the kind of anti-white racists who kind of fundamentally are running the show right now that there are consequences, painful political consequences for them not ceasing and desisting what they're doing. And then at some point, hopefully what you wind up with is a form of ethnic uh, to borrow the Cold War analogy, mutually assured destruction, where everybody's like, oh, well, you know, like, I don't want to go there. Maybe what we should do is, A, acknowledge the kind of European origins and culture of this country historically, and B, say, we are going to give individual rights to every American without fear or favor, or with without respect to, like, what race they are. Um, I think that is a, a place where we can at least reach an American detente and move forward from there. I mean, it sounds good. I how, <laughs> how could you possibly do this? I I mean, do we repeal the Civil Rights Act? I think you know when you say that's like yeah, it's there like are the a lot biggest, of problematic like elements of the right. Civil Rights Act. It's not that I'm saying that oh you couldn't do that. You know, I'm not I'm not trying to 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 cuck here. Um, I'm trying to say that, like, to, to kind of quote uh, my friend Curtis Yarbin, yeah. when you talk about doing stuff like that, you activate the lib immune system in a yes. pretty fundamental way. Definitely. Um, and, you know, you start making them think, I mean, as stupid as it is, it's like they begin to see Bill Connor and, you know, dogs, you know, hitting people or whatever. It's just like, yeah. So what I would say is there are fundamental elements of the Civil Rights Act that need to be completely reconstituted and reimagined to actually ensure civil rights for everybody. And I'd say that the organizing principle that we need to get back to is that in private life, at least, we have freedom of association, right? And that that needs to be an organizing principle. And there are even contours to that. So it's like, I think you can say that people have fundamental rights to receive certain goods and services. I mean, obviously, the government should be treating everybody completely without discrimination as regards to race. Now we don't even do that right now, but like even in my ideal world, that's that's clearly what we would do. Um, but for a private organization, I'd say like the great way to kind of look at this is 
what's happened with this Colorado guy who won't bake the cake for those of you who followed this for, for Christians where, you know, he's not even not willing to bake a cake for gay people. He just, he says, look, I'm a, a religious Christian. I'm not going to bake a cake celebrating your gay wedding. Right. It's just, it, it's a violation of my conscience. Um, and what's really clear is these people could absolutely get this service from any number of other cake baking shops, they are targeting him. The, the shop maker, regardless of what you think of his personal views, is the victim here. You know, he's yeah. the one being targeted by society. Um, and so, you know, to change civil rights law so that the burden of proof is on a person making an accusation of discrimination that, like, they can't, you know, that they're sort of being harmed uniquely or that they can't obtain another service, this service in some other way without there being some sort of irreparable harm or or really significant um, yeah. inconvenience to them. So I think it's doing things like that without sort of going around saying, oh, we're gonna repeal the Civil Rights Act yeah. uh, and, and freaking out people. Also looking at some of the ways in which the Civil Rights Act has been extended in ways that were absolutely contrary to, um, again, if you read these legislative debates, the way that it was um, intended. Disparate impact is kind of a, a primary one here where, you know, disparate impact, uh, there's a there's an independent uh, member of the Civil Rights, uh, U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, who wrote a law review article saying disparate impact makes everything essentially presumptively illegal, um, you know, because it has a disparate impact on some protected group. Um, it is very clear that disparate impact is directly at odds with what was promised in the Civil Rights Act. And so just simply going through with executive orders and our legislation when you need to, and just like killing stuff like that, you'd make a huge, huge dent in some of these problems. So so disparate impact, I, I had a guy on here named David Pivtarak. Have you seen David Pivtarak? I, I have not. I'm uh, Yeah. Embarrassed. So he's filing a class action against American Express for anti-white okay. discrimination. Oh, great. Yeah. And so he's taking up some of these very obvious discrimination cases, right? Yeah. Um, and he talks a lot about disparate impact. But what what is disparate impact again? That simply means that you can prove discrimination by statistical changes, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's basically, I mean, effectively, it's like it it puts a huge burden on you. And and again, I don't want to, as a non-lawyer, oversimplify this thing where there's you know huge law case books. But but effectively, if I can show that, say, you know, four percent of my technical employees at some company are Hispanic, but yet 15% or 20% of the job market is Hispanic. I need to show all of these things that are kind of hard to show right? to right. show that I'm not, um, you know, illegal. And you're shaking your head here as, as you should appropriately. I it's mean, it's so, it's so absurd. Yeah, it's yeah. So completely absurd. And, you know, shame on us because we're beginning to challenge this. And I actually think I may have heard now about this Pivtrack guy when you said the American Express suit, America First Legal, Stephen Miller's group, is really doing some terrific work here to begin to say, hey, you know what, particularly in, in the wake of the Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action, which could apply to some broader things than just schools, we're gonna we're gonna challenge all these things. But but white people have been pathetic. We've let this go on forever. It's like no self-respect, yeah. no demand for equal treatment. Um, and uh, yeah, I understand it. I talk again a little bit about in the book, like why I think that is. 
But just like well, wait, but why do you think that is? Uh, it's a complicated. I mean, it's complicated. It's multifactorial. I mean, and I think a, a certain you know there's certain elements of like if you look like you're whining, it's low status, right? Yeah, and they yeah. so they want to make every you know vindication of us asking for equal rights as though you're whining. That's low status. Um, there's also a certain kind of noblesse oblige, particularly among sort of middle to upper middle to upper class whites of like, oh, well, we're, you know, we're all doing fine. We're doing well, you know, look at all these other people. They're not doing as well. Um, you know, that's not factually, it's also untrue at this point, which is one of the reasons I think things are finally changing. But, uh, you know, just let those those folks have it. I mean, it's it's kind of the, um, there's a classic line. I'm, I can't, I'm just blanking on the name of the movie where that kind of epitomizes this, where um, this guy is talking to Matt Damon's very uber white OSS character. This is like in World War II. And he's like saying, all all these groups have, you know, this, oh, this, yes, this. Yes, yes, and yeah, you, yeah, you yeah, white yeah, people yeah. don't have anything. You know, what do you have? And he says, I think America. We the, have the, the United States of visiting. America. Yeah, it's from, yeah. Uh, it's from um, The Good Shepherd. Yeah, there you go. Is a very long movie, and yeah, he says, "What do you have?" He says, "We have the United States of America." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, there, there's an element of that that's not true, by the way. It's, it, I mean, even to the extent it was once true at some point, and I think it probably was. It's definitely not true today, and to some extent, white Americans, again, something I write about in the book, which everybody should buy when it comes out. I'd be remiss to not say that. Is um, uh, you know, to, to the extent that there is a certain amount of white enclavism going on, which is to say, like, whites still live in very disproportionately white communities in general. Um, and so I think they are um, in denial to a degree uh, to which uh, to, to the extent to which they don't just have America anymore. Um, but I think it's just we're getting to this sort of numbers level where it's it's really sort of hard to to deny. And so. But but all these things have sort of pushed against white people kind of standing up for themselves and their dignity in just like the most basic ways. And, you know, it's all fine for me to say it's kind of pathetic, and it is. Um, and also, of course, they were shamed, and they, they were shamed in uh, mainstream media organizations that were often very liberal and quite hostile to them. Um, there are costs um, to speaking out like this, and there's cost to me in writing my book. Uh, and I thought a lot about this. You know, I, I actually didn't want to write this book. I tried waiting for years for somebody else to write it um, because I was like, you know, I look, I've got five kids. You know, I've got a nice life. I've taken hits. I'm not afraid to take hits. Anybody who Googles me can can figure that out. But like, do I really want to take this on um, because yeah. I'm going to get hit 10x? Yeah. Um, and I, I ultimately decided that I, I needed to do it. But there, you know, the left has done a great job of putting costs on, on speaking out. So yeah. they'll you find know, some, you know. they'll find the three lines in your entire book where it seems yeah. like you're yeah. a white supremacist and they'll put right. it on an ADL sheet yeah. you know, and you'll yeah. look at him. Yeah. And, and again, I've gotten to the point where I'm just like, kind of like, well, F you, you know, I don't care. You can yeah, say I don't what care you want to say about me, but yeah. that doesn't mean that it won't cause me any inconvenience or worse. Oh no. I mean, they'll, they'll try, but I think you're right. I mean, I think we're just hitting a, um more and more the mil like the uh so 
I have a side of my family that's like wasps, like old right. Mayflower. You know, we have the chart that goes back to the Mayflower and, you know, yeah. it's all, this is in the Chicago area, but it like, I think it's Hamilton, actually. I think it literally yeah. goes back to Hamilton um, and, uh, or Madison. I don't, I don't remember, but, uh, you know, these are all liberals for generations, for, yeah. for you know, five generations back, liberal families who give to Dem party in the Chicago area. You know, it's a, it's like, yeah. you know, these are ancient people. And now finally, you know, they were all very liberal growing up. My dad's brothers, except for one who was like, you know, very middle of the road, like right. uh, centrist conservative, uh, kind of like tax guy. I don't like taxes type. Um, right. Now, in the past two years, you know, they would have never voted for Trump. They thought they hated <laughs> Trump. You know, they completely. Yeah. Now we're on a text thread and they're starting to say like, yeah. okay, the, the, this yeah. is <laughs> ridiculous. Like, you know, these people really do hate white people. I mean, they they yeah. really, you yeah. know, they're, they're literally. And, you know, if you're looking at your kids, you have to start to say, well, okay, maybe I can take this, but can my yeah. kid right. be discriminated against? Like, is that yeah. okay? Like, and no, who can, who can be okay with that? Right. You know, what kind of parent is okay with that? You know, I have another family friend of this group, uh, Jewish, and, you know, he has this story of sending his daughter to, you know, and I went to one of these schools, the, the you know, the public school, very diverse, and it's a disaster. I mean, it's yeah. a complete disaster, but but we're, we're told, oh, you know, his position is because he's such a boomer is like, well, it's not their fault. You know, it's, it's not yeah. their fault. And okay, fine. But it's still your job as a parent to not yeah. put your kid in danger, right? I mean, you still right. can't put your kid in these circumstances. That's right. And so, you know, at a certain point, you have to kind of start standing up for these things. Um, right. Are, are, are you familiar with, but to, to kind of return to the question of why white people are like this, <laughs> why, why, why they be like that, is yeah. uh, are you familiar with Nietzsche, Last Man? Like yeah, sure. Last Man. Yeah. So uh, the last man is uh, a, 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 an example of a warped will. You know, I mean, a right. Christian is also a warped will, according to him. But the right. last man is the perfectly warped will because it's pity. And pity is superiority disguised as empathy, right? Right. Sure. So like the, the religious atheist who it, it has empathy for everybody, in yeah. fact... It's his will scrambling to be above all of yeah. those people. And like yeah. the guy, you know, the, these leftists, the guy who just got killed, got stabbed. And, you know, his girlfriend won't yeah. identify the black guy because they were hardcore leftists in a way like he's actually the perfect white supremacist because sure. he has allowed he's literally given his life. Yes. And That's to be above to be above yeah. this other category. Right. You know? Right. Well, and, and and that's right. You know, at some level, it's right. I, I have these kids, right? So it's not an ac academic exercise. And when you look at a lot of the most shit libby people, they frequently are not parents. Or, or if they're parents, there is a class divide. And this is why the upper class has been, in general, the white upper class, not exclusively, but largely so lousy on this issue. Because for me to have to care is an indication that I can't just sort of be above it, that I can't be this guy who like, yeah. oh, I just can look down from them on Olympian Heights and pity them. Yes. Now, yes. you know, again, like 
I'm very well situated. I've had a very good career. Um, you know, we have plenty of money. You know, my kids are doing great, thankfully. But I can't just treat this as an academic exercise. You know, whereas maybe if I had $200 million in the bank, I could just virtue signal on this, knowing that I could buy myself out of the vast majority of trouble that anti-whiteness was going to cause my family. Yeah, exactly. So, well, it's great, man. It's great that you're standing up. I'm very, I'm very happy. I mean, do you, uh, did you kind of make a conscious decision to go from, I mean, I guess you were in the Trump administration, so maybe you didn't have a choice, but I mean, did, did you get kind of pushed to the side by the mainstream thinking of the right? That's a great question. You know, I don't know. I kind of feel like my thinking, I don't want to say it was always my thinking, but just for a long time, I mean, I can remember in high school before I was even conservative, like arguing with people about affirmative action and other stuff, or even things like crime, where it was just like the narrative I was being sold was so clearly at odds with the reality around me that I was yeah. like, no. Um, so I, you know, I don't know to the extent that I, I didn't make some conscious break, like, oh, I'm going to be, um, some edgelord. I mean, I still consider myself a mainstream conservative Republican. I try to work within the party and within mainstream politics to a degree that maybe some folks on the kind of edgier edge uh, do not. But I certainly did get to a point where I was like, you know what, I'm just going to say the things that I think are true. Um, and I'll let the chips fall where they may as far as the consequences of that. Right. Because we're just we're just at that point as a country where people need to do that. So with regard to black people, let's just let's just figure out how we answer these questions. Do you like I'm not a racist personally, you know, like I know that some right. people are. What what is your thought about the role of black people in America and your, you know, in your ideal situation? How does it work? You know, I mean, do, do you know what I'm do you know what I'm saying? Like, where, where well, how do we stand next to each other, et cetera? Well, I mean, obviously, there are some uniquely fraught things about the history of African-Americans in the United States. Right. Like it just is like slavery exists. We're not suggesting that it didn't. Um, that having been said, there's nothing unique about like a slavery. I mean, the, the unique thing about slavery in a Western context is we put an end to it, um, you know, which never had been done anywhere. And in fact, yeah. still hasn't been done in lots of places, including Africa. Right. So right. to the extent that there's sort of broader moral, when there's, to the extent there's particularistic moral claims that slavery was a very bad thing or Jim Crow was a bad thing, you know, I certainly am in agreement with those. To the extent that those are used to make sort of broader claims about the invalidity of Western culture or of white people or what was yeah. accomplished here. All colonists but, are, are not legitimate. Yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. You start the decolonization narrative or yeah. something, you know, <laughs> then I'm going to push back extremely yeah. strongly. I think, you know, but ultimately to me, and, and it's sort of interesting also, of course, because now you have a very significant portion of African-Americans who are African immigrants who, of course, don't have that history. And you have even some like the Ebos from Nigeria who are doing substantially better than the median white American on pretty much any um, educational or, uh, or economic um, kind of spectrum that you could put it. So I think that even within the U S at, at sort of a group level, things are getting more complicated, but at an individual level, it's just more simple. It's like, we're going to have laws. We are going to um, enforce those laws 
uh, without fear or favor, regardless of race. Um, things are not going to wind up demographically equal in lots of ways, in lots of different areas of society when you do that. And we got to be OK with that. You know, that's just reality. Like, I'm not going to accept that it's because, you know, Ku Klux Klan 2.0, you know, any more than I um except that the NBA is 70% African-American because the NBA discriminates against white people, right? Yeah. Like there's just, there's a variety of different factors that go into uh, the way that society sorts out. And I think the only claim I'm going to make is to the extent that African-Americans are struggling as a group uh, right now. And I don't even think that's universally true, by the way, it's true for a segment. Um, but uh, it's not primarily because, you know, the secret KKK is organizing to keep them down. Um, it's the reverse. You right. Know, and so, you know, my view is like, because there's no simple. accountability, you know, I mean, it, sure. it, because liberals don't want to give them any kind of, it's like, do whatever you right. want. You know, they, they, it is, you know, dare I say it to mainstream myself, it is the soft bigotry of low expectations as George yeah. W. Bush yeah. Yeah. Uh, said. So my view is like, I'm going to treat African-Americans and any other group in the same way that I would want to be treated. I'm going to treat them with full respect as people. I'm going to have full expectations for them to, behave toward me in an appropriate manner as people. I'm not going to discriminate against them and I'm not going to discriminate for them. And as long as that's what they're okay with and do the same to me, then great. We're going to get along great. If they start, you know, trying to, you know, seize things from me because I am white or to that's tell right. me that I'm bad or my history is bad because I'm white, then we're going to have issues that we're going yeah, to have to work through. You. Right. And, yeah. and we, we need so, more of that. I mean, my, yeah, my message would be just like, you know, I think it's the liberals that tell them because the liberals, as you're saying, they're they're all run by these awfuls, the Emma Lazaruses of today, who just see them from afar. You know, they and they, they yeah. don't actually have any interaction with them. Yeah. And so and then they think in their heads, well, I think of these people as beneath me. So everybody thinks yeah. of them as beneath me. Right. And that's not good. <laughs> like yeah. They're actually yeah. talking to themselves. Whereas what I would say is like. Black people are quite obviously absolutely vital to the history i mean like how can you say american culture is not sure. heavily influenced by black of people i mean it's like over indexing right right so to say that black you, you can't write country, them out of the american story it's like right. they're, they're the one other very significant group that's, that's exactly. effectively always been here so that's right? what my messaging from the right would just be like look you guys are it like how can you possibly say that you don't have an impact on this country? I mean, how can you possibly right. say that this isn't your country? It obviously right. is. Everything right. we do is like about this culture. So why are you sitting here saying that, you know, it's you're so disenfranchised? I mean, it's just right. not it's like, OK, yeah, the income is different. The cultures are different, but it's like, give me a break. Like yeah. You can't say that America is not like deeply intertwined and influenced by this very small group, really. I mean, yeah. not very small, but pretty small. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's my view. So you just, you know, you have to demand to give equal treatment and demand equal treatment back. Yeah. And, right. Uh, exactly. You know, kind of neither, neither whitewash history nor make history worse than it was and say, you know, we're all going to go forward together as one American people, or we're going to have some real problems. Yeah. Uh, Cause I'm right. not going to be your doormat. Totally. So, so what, what's, the, uh, yeah, I'll let you go, but what is the, um, 
can you say the name of the book? I know it's not. Uh, it's well, we're still anyway. we're still going through the title now that the uh, the sales team has uh, suddenly come back and told me. Um, but it will be out in uh, in late February. The you know author named Jeremy Carl. You'll can search for it and uh, maybe come back on uh, after the book's out. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, so that'll be out. Uh, Publishers Regnery, which is a big conservative. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, publisher. Book. So it'll book be also. it'll be out there in stores. It'll be in Amazon, and um, you know when I when I when pre-orders are ready, uh, I'll be on Twitter, and people should follow me at Jeremy Carl Four, J E R E M Y C A R L Four, and I'll certainly be talking about the book and and uh, other related issues that we've discussed here today. Uh, for those of you who follow my Twitter feed, it's a great feed. It's a great sense of humor. I always appreciate what you're tweeting. So uh, thank you so much, Jeremy. A pleasure being on, Isaac.